1: Patrick O'Shaughnessy
0: is a Principal and Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest this week is Joe Mansueto, the founder, longtime CEO, and current executive chairman of Morningstar. Almost everyone listening will have used Morningstar at some point, as I have often, so it was incredibly fun to hear about the company's simple beginnings. Joe is an entrepreneur at heart. We discuss his early business exploits and how he and his colleagues built Morningstar into the global business it is today. Along the way, we discuss investing, what to look for when interviewing people, philanthropy, and a lot more. After we finished our conversation, Joe was kind enough to walk me around Morningstar's incredible offices, which ooze with energy and feel much more like a Silicon Valley tech company than a Wall Street mainstay. You can tell that Joe has injected his entrepreneurial spirit into the entire company, and it's a great sight to behold. A huge thank you to Joe for being so generous with his time and for sharing so many wonderful lessons on business and life. For show notes, visit InvestorFieldGuide.com forward slash Joe. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Morningstar founder, Joe Mansueto. Thank you, Joe, so much for joining me today. This is really going to be a blast. Um, There is a ton to cover because of your unique history and the seat you sit in, kind of looking Across the entire industry, but also having kind of grown up in it Um, So I think there's gonna be a lot of fun fun lessons to learn today I would love and I feel like a fool for not having known this until yesterday for you to
1: tell me about how Morningstar got its name So the name Morningstar comes from the book Walden by Thoreau It's the last line of that book. The Sun is but a Morningstar And it was one of the first books I read as a first-year student in college at the University of Chicago and to me, that book is all about independence, about thrift, self-reliance. And so when I was looking to name the company, I thought those were all good qualities for a, a, a company to, to embrace and embody. And so the name harkens back to, to that last line, the sun is but a morning star. And uh, I often tell the story where uh, I remember being a first year student uh, at the UFC and I, if you've read Walden, the conclusion is very powerful. And I'm wondering, how is Thoreau going to end this book? And so I get through the conclusion. I get to that last line, the sun is but a morning star. And I still remember very vividly, I put the book down on my lap. I look out over the quads. I'm in the fourth floor of Regenstein Library. The snow is falling. And I, I read that line, the sun is but a morning star. And I think to myself, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and it kind of stuck with me, and I had to think about it. And to me, it meant, you know, something that's been around as long as the sun is still in its infancy. It's still just getting started. And it's a very optimistic statement that no matter where you are in life, you're still a rising sun. And then it's like, I like the word Morningstar. It had a very positive ring in my ear. And so, but it's all about uh, Thoreau and his independence. And Morningstar is all about independence. And that's where the name derives. I'm curious if,
0: like me, you've returned to Thoreau throughout life. Have you, re- have you gone back and read Walden since?
1: You know, I read it uh, all the time, uh, you know, not the whole thing, but I'll pick it up and kind of read parts of the conclusion. And I think a lot of what's in Walden is just timeless. I mean, one of the things going through my head right now is, you know, is line simplify, 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 you know, really trying to simplify your life. And I've made some changes in my career recently. And one of the things I'm trying to do is simplify things, you know, whether it's how I run my investments, how I spend my time. And uh, there's a tendency, especially in this day and era, of just complicating things. You add in more things, you try and do more things, information coming at you, and it's really hard to kind of simplify, get some free time. And so that message of simplification that comes from Thoreau, I think is really great advice. But no, I'm always picking it up, kind of looking through uh, various passages, and so it's it's a book that's really stayed with me. You know, actually, everybody... At Morningstar, after their three-year anniversary, we give them a copy of Walden, and it's part of our our culture here. If you had
0: to give a book, and it can be Walden, to every 22-year-old graduating college, would that be the one?
1: I think it would be. I mean, it's one that had the most impact on me, and it's a very self-affirming book. It kind of gives you confidence to think for yourself, make your own decisions, and I think the lessons, you know, beware of any new enterprise that requires new clothes yes <laughs> you know that. you know there's just so much good advice uh and that you know if you hear a drummer you know a, a different drum beat uh you know follow that even if other people are doing other things and so I, I think there's a nice lesson to you know kind of be yourself have confidence in yourself you don't have to do what other people are doing that's very reassuring and you know giving you confidence to dream you know build your castles in the sky and then put the foundations under them and that you'll you'll be you know you'll find some success in life if you kind of focus on that, and these are all great messages for a 22 year old. Yeah, I would I would add
0: the his essay walking, which is shorter and and equally powerful and something that really really impacted my life. I'm curious how um, so going from from the time where you were reading the book on the quad. Um, and then you graduate school. And the period before Morningstar, which I believe started in the early 80s, you founded in the early 84. 80s. 84. So I would love to hear a, b- a bit about that period. We'll call it an incubation period. Sure. Um, and kind of how you, how in the spirit of, of Walden and Thoreau, kind of fi- kind of finding your own way, yeah. um, how you conducted yourself. So what was your way of operating to explore the world, to try to figure out what you were interested in? Um, kind of what were your guidelines in, in the early part of your life?
1: Yeah, I think I tried to... To expose myself to various things and kind of a bit of trial and error, like a lot of young people. But you know, I went to undergrad at Chicago, I also went to business school there right after undergrad. And I went to business school with the idea of becoming an entrepreneur. You know, I'd done a few little side businesses, if you call them that, you know, selling Christmas trees from a lot. Selling soda for my dorm room. So I got a taste of business. And it seemed like a very creative thing. I'd read the biography of Ray Kroc, how he started McDonald's. And I thought, you know, it's pretty cool to be able to start a business. And this is a time, remember, when Steve Jobs, starting Apple, as a young guy. Bill Gates, a young guy, starting companies. And so it wasn't crazy to think of, you know, early 20-something kid, Uh, starting a business. I didn't have much business experience. And so right out of business school, my college and roommate and I, we actually started a business doing research for radio stations of all things. And this was really my, one of my best friends today. Uh, His passion is radio. And so I wanted to see what starting a business was like. And so uh, he and I started this business. So we, after we graduated, we took the weekend off and Monday, started the business. Uh, and I spent a year doing that, really to see what putting a business together was all about. Not that I wanted to be in the radio business. Again, that was his passion. I did that for a year, helped him get that going. He still does that today. Uh, and then I left after a year. And really, at what I discovered during this time through reading is that I got really interested in investing. And even though I studied investing at business school at Chicago, but I learned about efficient markets and the message was, fire your stock analyst, you can't beat the market, didn't resonate with me. I understood it, learned it, but fortunately, I came across Warren Buffett, read The Money Masters by John Train, which is an awesome book, if you want to read a great book on investing, and there's a chapter on Buffett in that, got me really excited about investing, went back, got all the Berkshire Hathaway annual reports, read them all, got all the stock reports the insurance filings of the Berkshire Hathaway companies saw what he was buying and selling. So I got really interested in investing. And really, that's when the idea for Morningstar came to me. You know, as I would write away to really smart money managers who I admire, people like John Templeton, Michael Price at Mutual Shares. I would get their reports, and I'd look to see what they're buying and selling to teach myself. You know, why is Templeton buying HSBC? What does he see in that? I'd go look at HSBC, but as had all these mutual fund reports on my table, it, it, you know, first of all, I thought it'd be great if somebody compiled all this great information, all these letters that these smart managers are writing, all their holdings. There's a lot of good content. Somebody ought to put these together into a compendium. I would buy that. You know, I'm in my early twenties, and I'm just. And then I got to look at mutual funds. I thought these are great vehicles for most people to invest in. Here, I can hire the very best money managers in the world. At pennies on the dollar. And it's a very democratic notion. Previously, you know, only the Rockefellers could hire great money managers to manage their wealth. Now, with funds, you know, Joe Sixpack can go and, and hire John Templeton. And I just thought it was a cool idea. But, you know, it was a good idea, but I thought, I'm in my early 20s. What do I know? <laughs> I better go get some work experience. And so I worked briefly at a venture capital firm to see what that was about. I decided, uh, I learned a lot there, but I was up till five in the morning sometimes, working hard. And, you know, being a, I saw what being a venture capitalist was like, and I really wanted to get to more security analysis. And so I left and I went to Harris Associates here in town, uh, which practiced a Warren, and still practices a Warren Buffett style of investing, a very value-oriented philosophy. And I went there because, you know, I'd look at some of the holdings, I was interested in, and I always see Harris Associates as a kind of a major owner. So I called them up, got an interview, they hired me, and I had a great uh, experience there. You know, I got to cover Berkshire Hathaway. We were the largest institutional owner of Berkshire, and I got to cover it, and I still have my Berkshire Hathaway analyst reports which I actually, I think I sent those to Warren Buffett at one point. Uh, at least I didn't say sell, I said hold. Uh, Berkshire at the time was $1,200 a share. These are the A shares. Today it's 240000 But I, you know, so I got to, it was a, you know, great people. I had a great experience there. But at the same time, this idea for Morningstar is in the back of my head. And now I'm on the inside of a fund complex. We had the Acorn Mutual Fund. So I'm seeing what the institutional side of a mutual fund organization is like. And I really wanted this concept validated. So I thought there's two paths I can go with my career. I could go as, work as an analyst, portfolio manager, and that might be a fine way to proceed. Or I have this entrepreneurial idea. Let's see if it stands the test of time. And so the longer I work, the more I could see the fund assets were growing in the industry. And that, you know this is a really good idea, that to bring this together, really people buying funds at the time didn't have good sources of information to make an investment decision. I saw they were making bad decisions. They're buying funds based on total return, really not understanding the manager's philosophy, not understanding what are in the portfolio, what the holdings are. And I thought I could really tell that complete story and help people make smarter decisions around what funds to buy. Can we go back
0: a, a couple a couple paces to the business selling soda out of your dorm room? Mm-hmm. Um, so so can you describe what that was, what the business itself was, what you did?
1: Sure. Uh, it was the Room 607 Soda Service. <laughs> so my roommate and I, we just cleared out our living room. We had a two-bedroom unit uh, in the dorm. And we got rid of our beds and filled them with uh, refrigerators, called up the Coke and Pepsi distributor, and they would come every week and unload cases and cases of Coca-Cola and munchies. And then we'd put signs in the lobby, you know, the room 607 soda service, open 24 hours. <laughs> and basically, if our, our dorm room door was open, you could come in and buy soda. And then it was just the honor system. You know, we had a couple refrigerators there, and uh, you would go in, you'd pick out your soda you'd pay you know for there would be a a change jar there you'd pay uh yourself and we'd be there studying you know at our desk people would come in and out so it was great we got to meet everybody in the dorm super social activity and at the end of the day you know we'd stack all the empty bottles and uh it didn't really take much time but you know we'd each make like 500 bucks a quarter and uh, it was just fun and but you know it was fulfilling a need you got to meet people i enjoyed that interaction with people
0: uh, and it was, it was just a lot of fun. One of the little heuristics I use um, when thinking about business is the idea of transaction costs, which can be money, time, effort, and that probably the cleanest way to set up a good business is to reduce other people's transaction costs, just to make things easier for them. Yeah. Um, and that's like a classic, incredibly simple example of uh, reducing people's time uh, and the effort to just grab a soda.
1: Yeah, we're right down the hall or yep. up a floor, or down a
0: floor. So it strikes me that, that Morningstar, um, and I'd like to hear what what the actual initial product looked like um but but effectively is that same idea right that it's it's a pain in the you know what to um, get prospectuses or get information on a wide variety of funds you got to go all these different places um so why not create a central hub for that information
1: um so what what was the first product itself so the first product was called the mutual fund source it was a quarterly and it covered all of the equity funds in the country and so I just simply wrote away to every equity fund in the country, asked them to send me all their material, prospectus, shareholder reports, and price, dividend histories, all of that, and databased it. So I bought a bunch of PCs. <laughs> uh, I know enough about technology and programming, created the database, hired a few people to punch in all the data. And basically, I wrote a, a long computer program to output from the database you know, this is before desktop printing. So, if you remember dot matrix printers, uh, I printed these big, oversized pages in dot matrix with a dot matrix printer, and it had a perform. You know, the performance history. It had the investment philosophy. Then it had all the holdings of each mutual fund. So, Peter Lynch was running the Magellan Fund at that time. He had over a thousand holdings. So his his listing was probably about 10 pages in this book. Uh, but you could see, and it was ranked order by biggest to largest to, to smallest holding. And then I had the printer shoot it down to eight and a half by 11. So I printed out these big oversized pages. They must have been you know, three feet by two feet. And then to make the little dots go away, I had the printer shoot it down to eight and a half by 11. And I had a 400-page book called The Mutual Fund Sourcebook. Took out a, an ad in Barron's in their Mutual Fund Quarterly. With an ad, a long copy ad, you know, announcing a new tool for the smart investor, and you could buy one copy for thirty-two fifty. Subscribe for a year, four copies for one hundred and ten dollars. And so, I took out an ad, and even before I had to pay the printer to print this book, even before I had to pay Barons for the ad, money was coming in. <laughs> so I took out the ad. Float. Yeah, and I had that float. And so what? And that's really what funded the growth of Morningstar for all these years. People paid us in advance for publication services to be rendered in the future. I'm amazed
0: by um, how often you find the best business stories relying on float as a source of their success. There's a a fantastic presentation that I'll link to uh, a professor named Sanjay Bashki, I think is how you pronounce his name, about Warren Buffett's career uh, that he titled Moats and Floats. And that that there was sort of a switch that went on. Maybe Munger had a lot to do with it uh, in Buffett's head where all of a sudden he realized the power of float. And it's fascinating that that was such an important part uh, of the early Morningstar product.
1: Yeah, I knew enough as an analyst to know that that was one of the reasons I could get into this business was float. Uh, that I didn't have a lot of capital. I started in my apartment. But because of the float, it would make it economically possible. You know, in fact, when I talk to entrepreneurs today or would-be entrepreneurs, I go through the same concept of float and talk about how important it is to understand a cash flow cycle. Because most businesses, you lay out the money first. Maybe it's a retail store. You've got to build inventory. And you get paid as you sell it. And so that's a very negative cash flow dynamic. But with Morningstar it was very positive and I, I cite other many on, other entrepreneurs who uh, have used float. you know there's a guy here in town, a friend of mine, Michael Polsky, built up a big energy company that he runs today. but you know he got started. He knows he's an engineer knows how to build power plants, emigrant from the Ukraine, but was working for a big company building power plants. but he lined up utilities who needed power. and then he convinced General Electric, Uh, to finance, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of turbines, (laughs) you know, because he could create the power plant to sell. He had lined up the customers. And so he didn't have to put up any money. GE financed this whole thing because they wanted to sell the turbines. He lined up the power. And so he understood this, that somebody else could finance this without him. And then he sold this for many hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, this company. But it's a way, again, it's just one example, but understanding this float, you know, making sure that you're not laying out a ton of money and then getting paid later, you know, it's a powerful concept. Buffett uses it, obviously, with insurance companies. It reminds me of a a
0: little story I was reading yesterday on the flight here to Chicago a novel called The Financier, which is a fascinating book. And in it, there's, there's a, a young boy at the time who becomes the financier, who is wandering around, and there's an auction for for uh, all sorts of kind of random house goods, and one of them is soap, bar, a big big like wholesale block of bunch of bars of soap, and it's selling for you know thirty dollars or whatever it is, and the kid is doing the math in his head, and and he's realizing an arbitrage opportunity here, and he runs very fast to a local neighborhood grocer. He knows the lady that runs it. And he looks on the shelves and he finds uh, the soap bars that they're exactly the same ones. And they're selling for 16 cents. And he does the math again. And he realizes that the value, the retail value of this kind of auction block is about twice what, what it's going for. And he, run, and he runs to the store clerk, the woman who owns it, and says, if I deliver this later today, will you give, will you pay me 16 cents a bar for this? And she says, well, yeah, sure. I think I would. <laughs> And so he runs back and he has no money. And so he runs back and says, I'll take it at, you know, 32 bucks, bids 32 bucks. And then that doesn't have money himself, has to go to his dad and secure the money, uh, but ultimately makes in a day this kind of 100% profit. I'm, I'm really curious to hear your opinion on this, because some of your stories already seem to me that you've got an eye for business or arbitrage. Like you've got a, you seem to have like an innate sense of opportunities like that. Yeah. I'm curious to to what degree you think that is innate or can be cultivated.
1: I think it's a little of both. You know, it's funny you mentioned arbitrage because you know, my mom would often tell the story when I was a little kid. I was probably about uh, 11 years old and I at the time was interested in ham radio, amateur radio. And we'd go to these called ham fests. People would sell used equipment. And I, uh, I was with a friend of mine and his parents and this guy was selling this Drake 2B receiver and he wanted to get out of the ham radio business. And I knew that this thing was worth 250 bucks at least. And he just wanted to get out of the business, was selling it for 100 bucks. So I convinced my friend's parents to lend me the 100 bucks. Oh my God. <laughs> Bought the thing and then took out an ad. And then my parents paid him back when we got home. But I took out an ad and easily sold it for 250. It was probably worth three. It was worth a lot. I could tell it was way priced totally wrong. And uh, I made a couple hundred dollars as a little kid. And it was, you know, to me like a million dollars. But I just kind of had that sense that, hey, I I know from reading all these publications that this is worth X. And you're saying, you know, you want to get out. And so part of it, I don't know maybe i have a math i think i'm fairly good in math and so maybe part of it is a mathematical ability and then just a confidence in yourself arbitrage is really not that hard right if (laughs) you know the difference between a and b but i think it could be cultivated but i think there is a kind of a business sense a common sense that maybe is a bit more innate coming back then to uh, morningstar's early
0: years and the progression from the first product to where we are today maybe we can make a couple stops along the way Morningstar is so synonymous with with the information on funds on ETFs on stocks now even that frankly I know I'm I'm personally aware of the competitors because I'm in this business but my sense is that there is such a moat around this business whether it's brand or you know services and I really would love to explore the evolution of that moat it's it's a kind of an interesting origin story for how we came to be sitting together. I, I was actually asking people if they could recommend anyone to talk to about brand, how to build a brand, the power of brand. And Jeff Patak, who's the director of manager research here at Morningstar um, suggested you. And that that's kind of, that was the genesis of this conversation. Um, so through the lens of brand and moat, how did you think about that as you, were, as you were building Morningstar from its first early days into the next couple of decades? What were, what were the principles that you used to maintain and build a moat and brand?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly building a brand, building a reputation was pretty paramount in our thinking uh, throughout the history of the company. And, you know, I think it got more structured and formalized later as how we think about it. But in the beginning, you know, we just tried to create a really authentic product. And a lot of our brand derives from being a very trusted source for independent, unbiased research and advice. And we built that, I think, in a large way because we built up an analyst team. And the analyst team was never told only, you know, just say good things about a fund. It's give your true, unvarnished opinion about a security and because you're willing to criticize as well as praise, you develop an unusual degree of trust among your readers. The competitors that we have typically serve institutions. They don't want to offend the institution. They're primarily giving data to the extent that they give commentary, it's only positive. Uh, so we're, I think, pretty unique in the industry in being critical. <laughs> and you know that willingness, that confidence to criticize, creates a very strong authenticity and trust that i think is at the heart of our brand so we've always tried to be ubiquitous in the industry wherever investors are we want to be there so in terms of building the brand and so we've always had an open architecture philosophy so bloomberg for example is a very closed architecture you want bloomberg you come the only place you get it is that terminal we've had the opposite We're here, you know. We're very mission-driven. We want to help investors, no matter where they are. If they use our products, fantastic. If they use somebody else's, let's at least be part of that. So we've had an open architecture, help all comers approach. So consequently, you'll find our data, our research on Google, MSN, Yahoo, uh, as well as you know our clients, T. Rowe Price, uh, Charles Schwab, Fidelity. You go to those sites. They all have Morningstar data, research, star ratings. So we've tried to be ubiquitous. Wherever investors are, we want to be there as a little part of it. Or if they want to come to us, we'll have a more complete experience. But I think that's been a big part of building that brand, building that presence. It's an amazing
0: uh, amazing truth, right? It really, You really do see it everywhere. I never thought about it in those terms before. But it's obviously a powerful, powerful way to gain mindshare in what is like... So, we're so starved for attention these days, right? It's hard to gain mindshare anywhere. Um, and obviously, having been ubiquitous for so long is, is a key part of that. I'm curious how, in the early days, you thought about... The evaluation of fund managers. Um, so when you were hiring analysts, and I'm curious to know if you were doing it yourself as well, you had the background in securities analysis covering Buffett, basically a fund manager of sorts. How did how did you train or think about or set principles for what was good and what was bad in a fund manager in the early, or a portfolio in the early days?
1: So I did a little bit in the early days. I mean, I did some of the early interviews with people like Ralph Langer uh, at the Acorn Fund, Don Yachman. But Pretty quickly, I realized this is a big job. I can't be running the company and doing this. So my first hire uh, was a great hire, Don Phillips. I hired Don. It was the first fund analyst. And he uh, really deserves a ton of credit for building up the analyst team here, building up that editorial and that analyst voice. And with Don... It was just, you know, I think I just gave him the, the Berkshire Hathaway materials and said, read this. <laughs> I was kind of, but, he, you know, he was already a, a fun guy coming in. It already admired Templeton. He had the right instincts coming in. It's not as if I had a, you know, changed direction with him. So he had the right instincts, but he got inculcated with, you know, Warren Buffett, that style of thinking. And the industry was very different, you know, back in the early 80s. It was full of boutiques, people largely with their name on the door. It wasn't big business, you know, uh, getting into the fund business. And so it was much more people with a defined philosophy. And there were, you know, I think the quality percentage was much higher <laughs> back then. Uh, you got people who are really passionate about investing. And it really wasn't business types running fund complexes. It was people who were really good at investing.
0: What's your opinion on the major trends I would say, obviously, the big one being from active management to passive management. But another one might be from more boutique style, um, hands-on, name-on-the-door investors to more of a mutual fund complex type company. I'd be curious to hear your pros and cons or concerns about some of these major trends. What what,
1: what do you think about it from the perspective of an end investor, obviously, who who, who this is all is meant to serve? I I think those two trends are related. You know, as I mentioned, when I started in the industry in the early 80s, it was full of boutiques. As it grew, it's a very profitable industry. You know, big business entered the picture. So all of a sudden, product managers are hired, Harvard MBAs, trying to standardize, productize the industry. You know, we need an offering for every square in the style box, and we need consistency. And so what happened is, you know, the rise of the the closet indexers is how I think of it, that people wanted really the the unattainable. They wanted consistently good high performance. <laughs> yes. and, so, and they didn't want to get fired. And so you had managers looking very closely at their benchmarks, trying mm-hmm. to mimic those benchmarks, maybe tweak it a little bit. But basically, they were closet indexers, index funds charging active fees. So if you look at the industry today... You know, I, I think of this bell curve. You know, there's a, you know, the poor managers, then this mushy middle, this big part of the normal distribution where there's a lot of average managers charging active fees. And then on the right, you know, you've got true active management people who are really outperforming, doing well, deserve active fees. And I think what's happening now, this trend to passive, is this middle is getting washed out. And it deserves to be washed out. Uh, You know, if you're going to deliver index-like performance, you better have a low fee. (laughs) You don't deserve an active fee. And so this middle is getting compressed, and these bad active managers are going away. And so my hope is the industry is going to revert more back to how it was when I started, where you have people who are true professionals, people really doing the the, the legwork, doing active management. The rewards for active management are as great as they've ever been. But you just need to do the research. The average manager, the average manager is, you know, tends to lag a bit because of fees. But the better managers still deliver outsized returns. And so uh, will passive take over the industry? I don't think so. Will it continue to grow a little bit and continue to wash out this middle? I think that's probably right. It might grow by market share, 100 basis points a year, some years a little more some years a little less but you know i think that trend will certainly continue but i still think there's a strong case to be made for active management can you tell me about the origin of the morningstar style box yeah that was don don phillips came up with that and i think don tells the story of writing it on a napkin at a, at a conference and just trying to better describe how managers uh, invest you know at, at the time when we first classified funds it was the prospectus objective So the prospectus would say, okay, this is a a growth and income fund, an equity income fund, growth fund, whatever. And pretty quickly what we found is what they said in the prospectus and what was in the holdings might be two different stories. So we said, this doesn't make sense. Let's classify funds based on not what they say in the prospectus, but what they're buying. So we took the holdings and we classified uh, the funds based on what they were actually doing. And that led to the style box with its axes of investment style, PE or growth, and then market cap uh, as the other axis. Uh, and But looking, at, again, at the holdings, more of a holdings base than a prospectus objective. But Don really deserves a lot of credit for coming up with that. And that really changed how funds were classified in the industry.
0: It's amazing how much today, still, it affects how people allocate assets. Um, from the biggest institutions down to the smallest financial advisors, it's incredible when you give someone a simple, elegant, and, you know, hopefully effective framework, how much that then shapes not only how people buy, but how fun complexes and managers launch their own products that, you know, we're, there, there are holes to fill, so to speak. You basically created the holes that then get that then get filled. I find that I find that a fascinating from a business standpoint that if you can create a hole uh, that people didn't know was there uh, and then provide the tools to fill it is a pretty Kind of like the arbitrage idea, that's a pretty neat way to structure a business.
1: Yeah, I think you have to be careful how you use it. It's meant to be a descriptive tool, it's yeah. a framework, as you put it, describing how a manager's invested. It doesn't mean to be prescriptive, that you have to fill in every hole. <laughs> it's perfectly fine to have a hole. We're not saying you have to fill in every corner. But it's a nice shorthand way to understand how a manager is invested. To look at a style box, you'll get a quick sense of the portfolio. It certainly beats looking at all the holdings, trying to plot that out yourself. Uh, but it's really not meant to be a portfolio construction philosophy. That you need to fill in every little square of the right. style box.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think you know, unfortunately, some people do do that. Um, yeah, that's and, right. And, uh, and and managers build portfolios to meet to meet those needs.
1: Yeah, then you might as well buy an index fund, right? right. If you're going to have a massively diversified portfolio covering every square of the style box. I'm not sure you need active management. Given what you've told me so far, my
0: guess is that you, you lean value versus growth. But I'm curious if that's if that's true in terms of your personal investment philosophy, whether you believe in one over the other or believe that there's just some kind of cyclical rotation between the two styles.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely more in the value camp. I mean, I like to try and buy right. But you know, I also like to try and buy great companies and hang on to them for a long period of time. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot to be learned from private business ownership and how that creates wealth. You know, I look at my personal situation and the best investment I ever made has been Morningstar stock. So it's the biggest source of my wealth. And you know, I've held Morningstar stock for 32 years. And you know, holding something that long, you know, any period, any point along the way to sell it would have been a mistake. So just said, oh, you know, in 87, looks like there's going to be a crash. I better sell some of my Morningstar. Would have been a bad decision, very short term. But to me, it's very instructive then for my publicly held stocks that you don't want to kind of jump in, jump out. You really want to hold good companies for a long period of time and participate in the wealth creation as opposed to, you know, jumping around and, trying to own based on who the president is, what the economic cycle you think is going to be, what the dollar is, et cetera.
0: How much of your confidence to do that is rooted in the fact that you founded the business. I'm always searching for sources of discipline and confidence, thinking that, you know, obviously those are important for long-term investment results, discipline especially. But I'm sure Morningstar, as in, with any great stock, over the long term, there are countless times of, if not panic, you know, concern, reasons to sell. I'm just curious how portable that is for investors in companies that didn't found those companies.
1: Yeah, no, certainly being on the inside and being in a controlling position, gave me more confidence to hang on and uh, be content with that as a big portion of my net worth. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that's certainly true. But still if you look at a lot of the great private businesses, again, trying to buy in or out of Mars or whatever the company is, even if you're not on the inside, you can just see that you know these have been, been built over a long period of time, limiting you know, transaction costs, taxes, If you find the right businesses that continue to grow uh, and the right management teams to get on that up escalator and just stay there, uh, I think there's just a lot of merit to that. And I look back even on the the stocks that I've owned over time. You know, I tend to buy well, but, you know, the mistakes I've made have been selling too early. You know, I look back at some of the stocks I sold in the 90s or early 2000. You know, I've owned Apple at times, you know, and, uh, you know dell you know some of the the more techie names that have gone on and just a a lot of names you know might uh, damage my ego if i go too through too many of them uh but no just a lot of names that you know that are now money multiples of where they are you know when i sold them
0: so so 32 years is obviously a long we've mentioned the word growth a lot and a long trajectory of growth and one of the things that i am most interested in um qualitatively but also quantitatively is the role of ceo as capital allocator and what an incredible hard job that unsung and hard job that is relative to the more glamorous you know product or service creation and so i'm curious to know the history of of your views and actions in terms of as a capital allocator whether that be some mix of organic growth where you're kind of growing the products and services yourselves versus acquisition, return of capital to shareholders. Walk me through, if you could, the history of of your thinking as a capital allocator.
1: Well, I come at it with the mindset of trying to drive long-term value. So I want to build long-term value and what's the best way to do that. And so you've got a number of choices. You know, obviously the most near and dear is, is organic growth. And so looking at all of the opportunities we have internally, and typically there's a long list. You know, when we sit down with our teams, there's a long list of investment possibilities. And so to me, that's the best source of long-term value creation is organic growth. Businesses that can grow on their own without having to resort to, say, acquisitions. Uh, It's just a much healthier growth. You know, there's no integration issues. And so if you can get organic growth, I think that's by far the best. Of course, it depends what the project is, what the projected returns are going to be. But we typically have plenty of opportunities because we just stay focused on investors and try and find other adjacent needs to satisfy. And there's a lot of needs we can satisfy. So we're always looking at organic growth opportunities. But typically, you know, given where we are today, it doesn't really take cash from our balance sheet to fund those because we have 30% EBITDA margins. And so when we invest in a new opportunity, it's not going to take money from our balance sheet. It's going to mean our EBITDA margin is 200 basis points lower and so it's you know where do you want your profitability to be and so we can fund all of our organic growth just by calibrating our margin a bit with the money on our balance sheet then we can do look at things like acquisitions dividend share repurchase you know if we can find an acquisition where it furthers our strategic direction and it, typically, it's a build or buy decision. We know how to build databases. We know how to create software, but if somebody's already built something that we're going to need on our roadmap, and it can get us there quicker, and we like the people, you know, we'll consider an acquisition. We did a you know a pretty significant one at the end of the the year last year, PitchBook, a private equity venture capital database, wonderful company. Uh, so we'll take a look at those, and then any money left over, dividend share repurchase. My preference is repurchase over dividend, if the price is reasonable. And so we do a valuation of our stock, just like we do other stocks. And if it's at fair market value or below, then we can buy back shares. And to me, that's better because then shareholders can time when they want to have a taxable event. If I pay a dividend to shareholders, Uncle Sam is going to take a third of that, or whatever percentage, and the shareholder has no choice. If I give it back to the shareholder in a repurchase, they can choose not to make that a taxable event and let it ride. And so I think it's a little bit more shareholder friendly if your stock is selling at fair value or below to do a repurchase. Can you talk me through that repurchase part? This
0: is an area where where I've done a, a lot of research and found some pretty fascinating results. The high level is companies that have what I call high-conviction buyback programs in place, 5% or higher of shares outstanding in a one-year period, so pretty, pretty big chunk. That's pretty big. Have delivered pretty exceptional long-term returns, 3 4% annualized above the broader market, say the S&P 500. I'm curious how systematic that process is of the amount that you're buying back as it relates to the discount to intrinsic value that the stock price is trading at. Like, how... how how much of a relationship is there between the lumpiness or the timing of share repurchases and the discount that you're observing?
1: You know, with our buyback program, given that Morningstar stock is not super liquid, there's not a tremendous amount of float out there. We don't have the luxury of trying to time our purchases that finely because the liquidity is just not there. You know, some years we've bought over a hundred million. This is on a, you know, we're about a three billion dollar market cap, hundred million of stock. And again, if the float is not big, we can't really kind of move in and buy aggressively. And so I view it more as dollar cost averaging. Along as long as that share price is going to be below fair market value, we do temper it a bit, you know, if it's greater, the more it's the bigger the discount, the more aggressive we're gonna get. But we can't I try not to be too clever about trying to time this too finely because the liquidity is just not there. We're not IBM. We're not one of these large float uh, companies. Why do you think that
0: dividends are still so prevalent and common, given everything you said about, you know, you can, it's pretty easy to create your own dividend at the time you need it and not have to be taxed on a constant quarterly
1: stream of dividends. Why do you think that's still such a, why, are, why isn't it just all buybacks? You know, I think it's inertia. It's uh, legacy. It's people not really understanding Kind of how all this works a lot of people running companies are experts in their field but they might not understand investing i think managements who have more of an investing uh, bent or understanding would favor that you look at berkshire hathaway doesn't pay a dividend right it's all it's all you know and even there, he rarely does buybacks. Uh, but uh, I think managers who have more of a conviction in their own capital allocation abilities and what makes sense for shareholders. But it's a good question. You know, I do think buybacks make sense, and or they may view that their stock is not cheap enough, and they're you know waiting for lower prices, and they can't buy it back, and they've got excess cash. You know, a lot of theory you know links it to option programs and trying to boost the stock, but. I think buybacks have gotten a bum rap lately when people have tied it to this is managers trying to line their own pocket, when I think buybacks are just super shareholder friendly and a great use of capital, as long as the stock is not uh, overvalued. You mentioned the
0: word management a couple times there, and I'm, I'm curious if you could characterize your management style over the years, whether it's been the same from from the early days uh, or has morphed, and especially if it's morphed, you know, why? What, What lessons have you learned about managing people over the last 30 years?
1: I would say my management style is intact. It has not changed. You know, it's hire great people, surround yourself with great people, really delegate to those people. I manage people as I want to be managed. I'm not a micromanager. Uh, I try and hire the best, check in with them a lot, understand what's going on, have a lot of dialogue, but really give them autonomy to do what they've been hired to do. And I think I've been that way since the beginning. Frankly, I don't have the time. You know, if I have 10 reports, I don't have time to be running around kind of second-guessing everybody. And I just know that people get a lot more job satisfaction if they can make the decisions in their domain. So I think of it like chess. You know, you give up the pawns, but you fight for the kings and queens. And so if you're designing a brochure and you like blue better than red and I like red, blue it is. I'm not going to fight you for that. But if there's something really majorly wrong on that brochure, the copy's terrible, I'm going to have a conversation. But in general, I'm going to let you do what you want to do. That said, what I do what I do as a leader has evolved tremendously, The style might not change, but in the beginning, you know, I'm very hands-on, I'm doing everything. I'm doing the programming, I'm interviewing managers, writing the ad copy, hiring people, everything. But I quickly realized that my ambitions are to build a major enterprise. And to do that, I've got to build a team. I've got to hire people like Don Phillips and others who are great at what they do and build a team. So step out of that, how do you do that? So kind of get that done but i've really enjoyed the evolution as a leader part of what i enjoy is learning and so how do you do acquisitions how does that work you know do you integrate do you leave them alone how do you do business abroad so travel to europe travel to asia how does that work do you leave them alone do you integrate how do you uh, how, do, how do you go public we went public 2005 how do you become a public company ceo what's that about And so learning all of these steps and growing as a leader, I have just found fascinating. So I try and be a student of business. You know, at times I've gone on a board of a bigger company to learn. You know, I was on the board of TransUnion, a consumer credit firm here in town uh, that was owned by the Pritzkers. Now it's a publicly held entity, but I was on their board because they were a bigger data and information company to see how they were run, learned a lot there. And so I've tried to kind of grow as a leader Uh, expanding my skill set, but I think my basic style as hiring great people and delegating is pretty much been the same uh, as day one.
0: Great people is so important and it's so easier, so much easier said than done. I'm curious if there are that you've learned over the years, common traits that you look for in people that you hire, regardless of what position you know, obviously they need skill set in, in, in the, in the field. Um, but if there are, if there is an underlying an undercurrent of traits that you, you're always looking for that you found have led to great success when, when picking and hiring people,
1: you know, it's funny, hiring is one of my, one of my passions in business. I really like the subject. The head of our HR will tell you I'm pretty involved in our HR programs here. And I tell my senior team, I think hiring is a single most important thing you do. You know, a business decision, you know it'll have some short term impact but the hiring decisions bringing in superstars are going to have a really long lasting impact on the on the business and so i'm still involved in you know interviewing people our senior team is we try and grow talent from within we have a morningstar development program we hire last year 150 kids right out of school college business school put them through a two year rotational program it's a big part of the culture and how we run the organization so we spend a lot of time looking at What makes somebody successful here? And so I typically, you know, I like to hire very bright people. You know, I favor liberal arts grads, people who just like to learn because the world is constantly changing. We can teach them the investing side. You know, if they've had it, if they found it prior to coming here, that's fantastic, but they don't need it. So I really look for a bright mind, people who know how to reason, put together an argument, question, probe, analyze data. So I'm really looking for that. And then I'm looking for some kind of demonstrated record of success. There's a lot of bright people who are idle, don't get a lot done. So I don't care what it's in. You know, it can be in athletics. It can be in your newspaper. It can be grades in school. Something where you've really shown that you've rolled up your sleeves and just engaged, embraced something and had some success, some excitement, some passion, some fire, but we do a lot of analytical things. You know, one of the projects I'm having the HR team work on now is really, you know, we get a lot of resumes in, but coding all the resumes and looking for these predictive factors. You know, there's a great book that I like, Grit by Angela Duckworth. It's a really good book. And she talks a lot about persistence as a predictor of people who've gone on to success. And looked at the Navy SEALs, what predicts what somebody will you know, who'll get through that training program, this rigorous training program, or how Harvard does it with their admissions. But you know, typically people who've stuck with something. And so as we're kind of coding the resumes that come to us, maybe you've gone out for something, you get zero points. But if you've done it two years in a row, you get one point. And then if you've done it two years in a row and you've had a position, you've been editor or something, you get another point. And so kind of scoring the resumes that come in, looking for this persistence. And then we're also looking at GPA, quality of the school. And so we're now we're just starting to kind of mine this and see what is predictive. We've done some other work of people here and what's predictive. But, you know, those in general are some of the things that, that, that we look for. Are,
0: are there other... I'll call it negative screens, where a great one obviously is no history of some sort of persistence or yeah. doing. That's probably the best negative screen. But are there other things that you've learned, qualitative, quantitative, through this evaluation process that you want to avoid in
1: when you're hiring people? Well, the thing that always leaps out at me uh, is uh, job hoppers. You know, I, I get a resume and the f- person has worked at seven firms each for 18 months. And I'm thinking, why are you gonna work here longer than 18 months? And uh you know is it a lack of stick-to-itiveness? and everyone seems to have a good story. <laughs> well, you know, I left there, and my boss there went to this company, so I went there and then but I just wonder, I don't know I you know it just it's a red flag for me, so somebody who doesn't stick with something, and I like to see people who stick with things. What are
0: some you mentioned learning of your favorite recent? books it doesn't have to be books um topics that you've explored
1: and, and learned a lot in the area let's see what have i read recently so the last book i read was was shoe dog by phil knight which is a great Amazing. great story of nike and uh it's a very candid biography but it's a, a nice reminder of how precarious it is to start a business he almost went bankrupt multiple times i don't that know was, if you've read it i have yeah. but it's a wonderful book and uh everybody talks a lot about life lessons uh the death death of his son is very touching. And so I think that's a, a wonderful book. So you know, I, I read a lot of biographies. Uh, I'm a big Ron Chernow fan. You know, his biographies of the Warburg family, Rockefeller are just wonderful. Unbelievable. The drama that he's able to instill in these stories. And then just having seen Hamilton, the musical, I'm going to read his Hamilton biography. But, you know, I try and read pretty widely, but you know, I try and learn from others. And, you know, I love reading in nonfiction. I'm probably drawn to. But, you know, one of the things I, I want to do as I have more free time is read more of the classics. You know, I think one of the in, in the haste of uh, running a, a large company and kind of a time crunch, somehow room to read fiction kind of gets crowded out. And so, actually, Don Phillips here has gone back to school, studying the great books. Cool. Had a good line where, you know, he says you, you read the classics early in life at school when you don't have any experience. It's good after you've lived a life, when you have some experience, to go back and reread the classics. And so one of the things on my to-do list is to go beyond kind of nonfiction, and pick up more of the classics and read a lot of the books I read in college and come at them with a, with a different perspective. The, you mentioned Shoe Dog, um, which makes
0: me think of The Everything Store, which is about Amazon. Uh, yeah, that's a and, great book too. And uh, Let My People Go Surfing, which is about Yvonne Chouinard and um, and Patagonia. And in all three cases, I mean, obviously these are tremendous long-term success stories, these three companies. But what strikes me as fascinating is the number of times when it appeared almost certain that the company was toast. (laughs) And again, coming back to persistence and just grit and drive, I think in those three cases, those three guys have dragged those companies through those periods. I'm curious, looking back on the 32 years at Morningstar, if you had to pick a time that you felt that was sort of the darkest uh, or the future was the grimmest, what time that would be?
1: You know, there was never a kind of make or break moment in our history, thank goodness, where... The company was on the precipice of, of disaster. That we have grown pretty strongly, and you know, tried to finance things pretty conservatively, not to put us in that position. You know, I think the the hardest time for me personally, though, was we expanded into Europe in the early '90s. Uh, set up shop in London. We're going to start publishing on funds there, and then we had to get regulated. And then the regulators were merging. We wouldn't couldn't get approval. We had 30 people there, and it's just burning cash. And we didn't have the authority to publish. And in the meantime, we hit a downturn a bit in the U.S. business. We launched a new publication. It cannibalized one of our others. Had a little crunch here. That's burning. So we had to pull back from Europe. So I had to go to London, gather everybody uh, in a conference room and tell them we we're shutting down. And people were angry. You know, one guy got up, slammed the door. And, you know, it was just, it's, you know, we've only had to lay off people twice uh, in our history here. And both of them were you know, pretty unpalatable things from my perspective that made me never want to get near it again. Uh, but to have to pull back from London to set up shop there, go around, do all that work, actually have a draft of the publication. And then we ended up coming back, you know, probably a decade later. And now we have a thriving business in the UK. But it pained my heart to have to pull back. All those people put in so much work, and to have to lay off some of the, the the Londoners there was 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 not a lot of fun.
0: You said uh, you mentioned the idea of cannibalizing an existing product, and I'm fascinated by uh, the idea of the innovator's dilemma and how large businesses, especially that have a successful product line, or many of them, foster innovation. Yeah, um, I'm curious how you do that. What have been the strategies you've used to make sure that you don't rest on your laurels, that you are constantly improving? The core services that you offer to investors
1: yeah i think just we you know i think we've got a culture of innovation here you know we push that down uh innovation is not any one department's responsibility Uh, a lot emanates from our analyst group who are analyzing funds stocks trying to find better ways to understand them and they may come up with metrics esg ratings and so we're always innovating from a research perspective and then as well as a product perspective you know when we develop product We use the agile method of development. We have many squads and these squads develop independently and they'll have what's called an innovation sprint. Well, they'll go off the roadmap. They'll come up with their own ideas and just test those out things that they want to do. And they have the authority to, you know, build in some innovation sprints into their development work.
0: I'm curious about that process in a little bit more detail. So you've got, let's say whatever it is, five, five groups working independently how specific is the thing or the goal towards which they're working? Is, there, is it a pretty set outcome that you give them and say, figure out the best way to do it? Or is it more um, generic kind of directional type projects that, that maybe allow for more discovery, but but also may hinder progress?
1: Well, it's a little both. I mean, we have product managers who'll set a roadmap over a couple of years. And these are the milestones that we want to accomplish. Then it's up to the squads to figure out how to get there. And so we have squads both for the common elements, so maybe graphs, <laughs> you know, various components of our software that are used throughout our lineup, and then more that are audience-specific, things just for individuals, things for retirement clients. And so we have squads that are more audience-focused and more general ones. And so we have, I don't know, we may have 30, 40 squads that are cross-disciplinary. So they'll have product managers, they'll have overseeing them, but they'll have engineers, designers, QA, so maybe 10, 15 people, and then we can release software every couple of weeks. And then they get up, they have showcases in front of the whole company, they show what they've been doing, and so it's a nice kind of process, and the software world has evolved to this, what's called Agile, that's the Agile development, and away from, it used to be Waterfall, where it'd be designed by product managers, designers, given to engineering, they'd work on it for a couple months. You'd have a big, and then QA would test it. Then you have a big bang release every three months, six months. But now firms are releasing some every day. We release every couple of weeks.
0: This rings a bell in sort of the the venture and startup world. It almost sounds like some of that culture has been ported inside of Morningstar, where There's the kind of the lean mentality. Oh, yeah. um, You know, the the Toyota production almost mentality. We have that, too. um, that, That seems to be, maybe nothing's perfect, but one of the more reliable ways of fostering innovation. To not have it be these huge projects that don't have feedback, quicker feedback loops baked into it.
1: Yeah, if you walk around the halls here, you'll see a lot of what we call huddles going on. And even if you're not in software development, you're going to be getting together with your team either daily or multiple times a week and looking at metrics, and there's a dashboard, and then there's, you know, there's new ideas left over from last huddle. (laughs) And uh, so there's a lot of kind of looking at metrics, and this lean Six Sigma approach is also pervasive throughout the company. Yeah, it really seems to work,
0: and I I can attest, you know,
1: it's only audio, but it's
0: an incredibly cool work environment um, that seems to to certainly jive with everything you said. If you had to pick a, a single individual most memorable day, In your time at morningstar what would it be
1: well keep in mind we've been in business 32 years (laughs) Uh, one day got a big shelf to choose from (laughs) you know i think what comes to mind you know is a time in the early 2000s when elliot spitzer was in his heyday and he fired off a subpoena to us and uh it was at a time when just getting a subpoena from spitzer almost implied you were guilty of something And uh, when I look back at the arrogance of that guy and their department, it was, you know, they send a subpoena and they say, we know you're guilty. Let's cut to the chase and let's work out a deal right now because you know you're guilty. And it was a pure fishing expedition. And we had to spend millions of dollars to gather all these documents that they, you know, went through. And then you get this kind of shakedown where, you know, right before he was going to leave office, uh, I guess the memorable memorable day was, you know, we were at a law firm and they said, you know, if you do not settle right now, right now, last chance, we are going to file suit at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. And you're going to have to defend that. Expensive. Your name's going to be in the press. We are filing suit unless you settle right now. And we said, no, we're not guilty. You know, this comes, it's not a matter of money. We could have settled it and just been, you know, it'd been done. But it was a, a matter of our reputation and our brand. We didn't want to settle something where we weren't guilty. And so we said no. And we walked out of there. I remember walking out with Don Phillips. And we thought for sure the next morning we were going to get this lawsuit. And they were so convincing. So 9 a.m. the next morning, nothing happens. <laughs> it was pure bluff. And they never. we never heard from them again. But it was You know, it was just a lesson in sticking to your guns, being confident. And if you haven't done anything wrong, you know, why settle and tarnish your reputation, even with a settlement? And I just, you just felt so abused where we went through this whole thing. And then, of course, once Spitzer gives you a subpoena, then the SEC jumps on because they don't know what it is. But if Spitzer is doing it, we should do it, too. So you end up spending millions of dollars, all this discovery, all these documents, all these law firms. And it was just such an unpleasant ordeal, and then to get this shakedown, and uh, but then I just it was I really felt good just saying you know we're confident, go ahead do it we're we're not going to settle, and uh, and then not having it play out as with a lawsuit. Uh, I, I think we just felt vindicated. It's so much psychology wrapped up
0: in there. The SEC following on makes me think of this is why momentum investing works. <laughs> <laughs> it is right. Uh, it, 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 the psychology is, is, and hurting is incredible. You, you mentioned early in our conversation about uh, this idea of simplification that comes when you read Thoreau. It sounds like you are trying to apply it even more to your own life. And I'm fascinated by... The way that people operate on a daily basis, sort of daily practices or rituals, things that, that you feel that you've cultivated that you feel are essential to do each day. So if, uh, if you're willing, I'd love to hear about your daily routine, things that, sure. that are important to you every day.
1: Yeah, I mean, people who know me will tell you I'm a creature of routines. And I think Peter Lynch said it well when you know, he also likes routines, and he says, I don't want to think of what breakfast cereal to eat every morning because I've got other things to think about, and I, I'm the same way. And so I, you know, my routine is I get up early. I'm a morning person, 5.15, and I'm also a runner. I love running, and running is a big part of who I am, staying somewhat decent shape, but I get up and I go run four miles. So I get up early, run four miles, get back, shower, and then my kids get up. I've got three kids. When they were younger, I used to make them breakfast. Now I don't think I meet their culinary standards, so they have other things that they get. But, you know, spend time with them before they go off to school. And then, uh, you know, my my habits are a little different now because I just made a transition at Jan on January 1. I'm now executive chairman. So prior to Jan 1 and for 32 years, you know, I'd be getting in here, you know, 8, 8.30 and, you know, working all day at Morningstar. You know, like I said, I've made a transition now where, you know, I'm not coming in. All day, And I've made that transition to give a little more flexibility and more time to read, to think, reflect. But I'm very much a creature of, of habit. As I mentioned, I tend to go to the same lunch spot. People who know me, you know, there's a place here in town I go to practically every day. Where? A place called Beatrix, okay, 519 yeah, been, North Clark Street. I've it's a been, great place. It is. And it's embarrassing. I go there and everybody, all the wait staff knows me and they tend to know my order. And I just like it. You know, it's, I don't have to think where to go. The food is good. People treat me well. And so, again, I tend to go to the same lunch spot, but, you know, the same routine. I, you know, I get home around the same time. Dinner with my family is important to me. I try and get to bed early. But, yeah, a lot of the same habits. And uh, uh, I that gives me pleasure and satisfaction.
0: Can you tell me about how you came to be a member of, the, of Warren Buffett's Giving Pledge? So,
1: Warren called me up. You know, I'd gotten to know Warren uh, through the years. I'd sent Warren a letter a long time ago. As I mentioned, I covered his... Firm when I was an analyst. And so, you know, at one point, you know, I'd been going to so many of the Berkshire meetings and I thought, yeah, I just write him a letter. So I wrote him a letter and he was kind enough to write me a nice response back. And that started, you know, a relationship. And he uh, called me up once and said, I have this thing, right when he was starting the giving pledge, you know, I have this thing, you know, would you want to sign on? And I said, uh, right on the phone, I said, I have no problem doing that because I know I'm going to give away most of my assets. My, you know, kids will be well taken care of and I'll have excess assets. And I've known that for, for quite a, a time. But I, I may have, you know, to convince my wife, not that she would question it. I think she would question more the being public about it. Yeah. And that was more the battle with her. And he said, oh, I'm happy to talk to your wife. Uh, give her my 800 number. I'll talk to her anytime. <laughs> uh and, uh, and, you know, Warren said it well. He said, you know, hey, if you're going to do this anyway, you might as well be on the good side of the ledger in life. And, you know, why not do that if you're going to do it anyway? And it was a no pressure kind of thing. And uh, so he just called me up and I said, sure, I'd be happy to do it. And that's how it happened. How often are you saying no to things? You know, anyone that's had great success in life has a wealth of
0: opportunity and you reach this tipping point where maybe you're driving, driving, driving to create opportunity. And then there's, you sort of get over the mountain and all of a sudden there's, there's excess demand for your time. Um, And so saying no becomes, I think, an important skill for someone that has that long Trajectory of growth and success. So, so what do you think about that idea of of that being a talent that that people can work on and maybe even apply earlier, earlier when they're still on the up the
1: upslope. You know, I think you are spot on, Patrick. Uh, I think people should learn that really quickly, and I try and tell that to my wife, who gets invited to things, and to my kids. Learn to say no. Do the things you want to do. Your time is precious, and uh, I think I learned it the hard way because you know I try and kind of help people out. And all of a sudden, you know, you're going to get pulled in many directions. And then at some point, you're wondering, what the heck am I doing here? (laughs) And this is not the best use of my time. And then you kind of get pretty good at it. It's not hard. People don't mind. Just say, you know, I've got a full plate. I like what you're doing, but I've got a full plate. I can't really, you know, work with you on on that. And people get it. And, And then you've got your time. And so I, you know, say no all the time and, you know, speaking engagements, I get invited to a lot of those. And, you know, do you really want to travel halfway across the country? (laughs) How much time that takes to prepare something, to travel there? You know, I do some of those, but no, you know, it's just, it's much better to say no. People, you know, if somebody invites me to a board, be on a board of directors, you know, it sounds prestigious, it sounds nice, interesting company, but you do the math, it's two weeks of your time a year. Do you really want to spend two weeks doing that? It's easier to say no and have your time. So I'm very protective of my time, and I've gotten pretty good at that. And, you know, Warren Buffett's been a great example in that, how he says no. And I think his free calendar has been a big part of his success. And he keeps an open calendar, and he's in demand 100x of what I'm in demand. And I think, you know, I learned from watching him, and I think anybody at any stage in their career should learn to say no and don't try and uh, satisfy all comers.
0: The, I just finished a book called The Systems Bible, about which, which actually is, uh, contrary to the way its title sounds, all about why you should keep away from systems as much as possible um, because new systems create new problems. And one of the major things that they do being in a system and everyone's in some set of systems in their lives is kind of blind you to how much time you are spending in within a system, whether that's on a board, which is itself a system, um, or, or part of the, the speaking circuit, so to speak, where all of a sudden you are an asset to the conferences, uh, and not the other way around. So, so this idea of simplify, 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 I think is so powerful It's been a a neat undercurrent of our conversation. And and I'm very glad that you said yes to this time. This has been been an absolute blast. And I really appreciate it. Hey, it's been a lot of fun,
1: Patrick. I enjoyed it.
0: Hey, everyone. Patrick here again. To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to InvestorFieldGuide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at InvestorFieldGuide.com forward slash book club.